Hi friends, before we get started, a quick request. Apple did a little update recently, which means that you may no longer be following High Performance Health. There is an easy fix to make sure you're not missing out. If you very quickly go to the High Performance Health show page on Apple Podcasts and hit follow in the top right corner. Once you hit the follow button, it will make sure you don't miss out and continue to get notified each time we release an episode to upgrade your health for high performance. And if you haven't already, while you're there, leave us a review. I read all of the reviews and I'm super grateful you're here. Estrogen levels go down, you're struggling to create that energy, and the mitochondria are struggling, giving you that feeling of tiredness and brain fog. You're listening to the High Performance Health Podcast, helping you optimize your health, performance, and longevity. My name is Angela Foster, and I'm a former corporate lawyer and high performance health coach. Each week, I bring you cutting edge biohacks, inspiring insights, and high performance habits to unlock optimal health, performance, and longevity. So excited that you've chosen to join me today. Now, let's dive in. Hi friends, in today's episode we're going to be diving deep into the world of hormones with Dr. Millie Rosada. She is the author of the book Happy Hormones, Happy You, a fantastic book that really simplifies everything about hormonal health. We talk about misunderstood conditions like estrogen dominance, which isn't well defined, and how you can achieve hormonal harmony, how to approach things like nutrition and fitness and detoxification, which is really important. We also tackle the challenges of managing hormonal health during key life transitions such as perimenopause, and we talk about and debunk some of the myths around hormone replacement therapy. I think you'll come away from this episode armed with the knowledge you need and strategies to take control of your hormonal health. So without further delay, let me introduce you now to Dr. Millie Rosado. So Dr. Millie, it is so, so lovely to have you here today. I'm so excited. It's been a uh, a few months getting this in the calendar. Um, I read your book, loved it, just thought it was so kind of so simple and user friendly, breaking down what are actually really complex issues. Um, so firstly, a very warm welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's really lovely to have you here. So happy hormones, happy you, uh, the lifestyle secrets um, to empower your hormones for better health and happier living. And what I love about the book when I was reading it is how easy you break things down for people, right, into sections and all of the lifestyle things that we need to be thinking about in terms of detoxification, in terms of nutrition, fitness, kind of all of the the different pillars, sleep, etc. You and I were just... Um, chatting offline there mm. um, about a kind of a very common issue that I think you are an expert in and isn't well understood and we but it gets banded around a lot right is we talk a lot and we hear a lot about estrogen dominance mm-hmm. um, and everyone kind of thinks oh it must be estrogen dominance I must have this um, and estrogen dominance my understanding is can happen through multiple mechanisms right not just through estrogen itself being high but if progesterone is low for example um can we start with what is estrogen dominance? Well, that's a very good question to start with. And it, it's a question that actually causes quite a lot of controversy in our space, in our field. And I think the main reason for that is because there is no defined def- definition of how we can describe what it is. In the literature, there is no papers that say estrogen dominance is this. So a lot of people have postulated from their clinical experience and patient symptoms how we can think of estrogen dominance as a concept. So we know estrogen is the main female hormone and I like to think of it and I describe it in the book in that when you have too much of something, it's due to three different things. You can be taking too much in. So if people are, for example, overweight and have got too many fat cells, we know that that conversion of testosterone to estrogen via aromatase occurs in that fats in those cells so you could be creating extra estrogen in that way circulating around the body or if there's a problem with people breaking down the estrogen within the body because we know that hormones commonly are detoxified within the liver and also in the gut as well for estrogen we know that phase three of estrogen metabolism occurs in the gut if there's a problem with that detoxification process and the breakdown then that can cause problems as well. And then also exposure to xenoestrogens and estrogen mimickers within the environment is a massive problem that we don't, that's very much overlooked and we don't talk about enough, whether it's in our nutrition and in our food that contains antibiotics and hormones, which can add to that estrogen load that people have. Or if it's from environmental toxins, you know, the perfumes and all of the, products that people are using from makeup 
There's so many things that can be estrogen mimickers and mimic the action and cause people to have symptoms of high estrogen. So that's one way of looking at it in terms of a high estrogen point of view. But then people may have normal levels of estrogen, but a low level of progesterone. And it's looking, is it because of that ratio not being adequate that people can get symptoms of that estrogen dominance? So we know that ideally a balance of hormones is ideal and everything should be balanced. And when things are balanced, people feel well and in harmony and have no symptoms. It's when people develop symptoms that that we know things aren't balanced. So if people have got a low progesterone and a normal estrogen, again, that can cause symptoms. So whether it's a high normal estrogen or not, or whether it's a low progesterone, it can be due to many different reasons, I think. However, because it's not well-defined as a definition in any of the major societies, especially in the UK and America, there's a lot of controversy that as soon as you mention the words estrogen dominance, a lot of people will jump on you and say, this doctor's talking woo-woo. This is not fa fact because the fact that there's no definition there, there's no levels that we define. So it is a very interesting topic. But when we look at the evidence and we look at the studies, what we do know is that estrogen is broken down. It is a fact. It's physiologically, we break it down. And then we look at those estrogen metabolites have been looked at in certain studies and they have been associated and correlated with certain health conditions. So fibroids or endometriosis. So there is some linkage there and much more research is needed to be able to clearly define what it is, what the levels are and look into it further as a concept. Perimenopause can be a time of significant disruption, not just to our hormones, but also to our sleep, anxiety, energy levels, and gut health. Add in a busy work schedule, workouts, and three kids, and I know that I need more nutrient support than I used to. While I do my best to get enough vitamins and minerals through whole food sources every day, there are times I can't quite get enough servings, and that's why I take AG1 every day. It covers my bases with high-quality ingredients like pre- and probiotics to support gut health, adaptogens to help buffer stress, antioxidants and whole food source nutrients to deliver that welcome boost in energy. One daily scoop of AG1 covers my nutrient gaps and supports my mental and physical health without a lot of hassle. I simply add one scoop to my water in the morning with the confidence to know I'm giving my body what it needs. Taking AG1 helps me to feel more energized, sleep better and gives me glowing skin. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1. And that's why I've partnered with them for so long. So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com forward slash Angela Foster. That's drinkag1.com forward slash Angela Foster. Would you like to uncover the secrets of your metabolism and hit your weight goals in a really easy, scientifically driven manner? For over a year now, I've been using a smart little device called Lumen. And through a simple breath test, Lumen helps me optimize my fasting period. It tells me the best time to eat carbs, how to fuel my workouts, it tracks how stress and sleep affect my metabolism, and gives me daily personalized meal plans. Lumen is the first device to hack your metabolism and reveal your lifestyle and diet's true impact on your health and ability to lose weight and it can help you to enhance fat burn lose weight and boost your energy naturally and lumen is giving listeners of this podcast 90 dollars off all you need to do is head over to angelafoster.me forward slash lumen and enter code angela90 at checkout to save 90 dollars you can finally take charge of your metabolism in 2024 with this exclusive discount. Simply head over to angelafoster.me forward slash lumen. That's A-N-G-E-L-A-F-O-S-T-E-R dot M-E forward slash L-U-M-E-N and enter code Angela90 at checkout. Now let's get back to the show. as well with the the medical system at the moment in the in the UK you know I remember taking when you're talking about those metabolites for example and I have a history of endometriosis and PCOS I remember taking my Dutch test results yes. right to my endocrinologist my gynecologist in fact actually it was my gynecologist and he thought it was all very interesting but mm -hmm. he'd not had any experience with it and I think that 
um, even testing itself mm-hmm. right, isn't that commonplace, um, for example, in the medical system, particularly when women are going through menopause, it seems like it's done on a trial basis almost. It's like, well, let's give you this dose and we'll see and see how you get on. And then if that isn't working, then we'll adjust it. It isn't sort of driven by data. Um, And how much do you think, I mean, with the metabolite side of things, I think it's really interesting because you can optimize those pathways, right? And that's actually done not just in functional medicine, but in functional nutrition as well. We look at that and help people optimize it. But in the mainstream sort of medical system, they're not looking at that, but they also don't seem to be doing a lot of testing to see women where women are. And I I just, it's curious, is that a funding issue? Um, Or is it just that they've got these sort of pharmaceutical doses that have been licensed at certain amounts and therefore that's how they're used? What's sort of going on there? I agree. And I think because there is no definition, it's not a concept that's looked at and therefore it's not something we test for on the NHS. And when we think of the NHS, it is a fantastic system that we have But we need to remember that it's an excellent system for people who are presenting who are unwell and not necessarily people who are wanting preventative care. And also we need to think how many people there are in the UK. It's very much a population health driven model where we're looking at the cost benefit analysis of putting tests in place. And so if we've got a concept of estrogen dominance that's not well defined and we've not got a test that that's a cost-effective test to look at, if that research isn't there, then it's not something that's going to be put in place. So we see a lot of women that do go to see a nutritionist, functional, integrative medic, and have all of these tests. So for example, the, the urine testing that you've mentioned, you know, the dried urine test for comprehensive hormones that look at those estrogen metabolites and certain nutrigenomic tests will show that as well. There's women who find that out put lifestyle interventions in place and their symptoms improve. But then when they take those results to like a gynecologist or an obstetrician or their GP, they say, well, it's not evidence-based. We, we, we don't look at this. It's not accurate. But, you know, for me, if someone has symptoms and they put a lifestyle intervention, which they're empowering themselves to do to take control of their health and it improves their symptoms, why aren't we talking about this more? Why is this not what we're doing more? And for me, again, it's because research is funded predominantly by big pharmaceutical companies and lifestyle is a free measure that people can utilize. And I don't think the evidence it deserves is in the literature to be able to fund and produce the results that are robust enough to go into nice guidelines, for example, if that makes sense. Mm. It's really interesting because I, I mean, I, I, you know, about six months or so ago, my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's mm-hmm. and uh, she has had a series of appointments and some of those have been NHS appointments. And what was interesting to me is that once you have that diagnosis, because at the moment there isn't a, a known drug pharmaceutical that can solve that issue. There are mm-hmm. ones that they'll give you, but they can't say that it will reverse it. For example, uh, we, the appointment defaulted to lifestyle medicine. And my mum was told that she must have nutrition that was organic where possible, that was free of toxins, um, that she must eat healthy fats um, and embrace things like olive oil and avocados and and almonds and things like that, that she must exercise and that resistance training had positive benefits for brain Mm -hmm. health as well. She was told that she must use her mind and so she must like uh, read things or learn new things, even if it's a cooking a new recipe. Uh, she was told to also do things to calm her anxiety and that meditation would help with calming that and also to, um, or calm anxiety in general. And uh, meditation and mindfulness would help with that and also tra- trains the brain. Mm. We talked about sleep and I was like, wow, you've gone through these five pillars, which if this had been given to someone in their 20s instead of someone in their 80s, yet all the way it seems that at any point I found, and I found my, myself any other problem I've ever had, the natural instinct is let me give you a drug, a medication, yes. or let's do some surgery. And then at the very end, when you've got something that we now can't reverse, we go back to lifestyle, which unfortunately is probably too late for. I mean, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong, I'm not criticizing it. In many respects, I thought it was really positive that they were giving her that advice and if it you know, can help to stem it. I was quite pleasantly surprised by it, but I just thought we could be giving this advice much earlier and we could be helping, as you say, even young girls who are at school 
optimize their hormonal health because so many girls are having these problems right from a very young age yes definitely well I think it's very reassuring that those conversations are happening because for me that would be a doctor who's definitely got an interest in some form of lifestyle medicine because but you know I've not worked in a memory clinic before or um, a specialist dementia Alzheimer's clinic but like you said that information should be giving be given at the start because our brain is fat laden it's full of cholesterol so going on these low fat diets um it it, it just still really does baffle me what, what advice and what's in our eat well guide the nhs guidelines that we tell our patients to have low fat dairy that's what the guidelines say and it, it still baffles me you know it's you can have orange juice a certain amount and there needs it needs to be revamped it really needs to be looked at because Yes, new emerging evidence is coming out all the time, yet we're still looking at all of these guidelines, the Eat Well Guide, that's very outdated, in my opinion. And we really need to tailor it to the patients. But for me, when it comes to nutrition, yes, there are people who are vegetarian, vegan. But if you're eating whole, unprocessed foods, that is one of the key things that you can do. Anti-inflammatory, unprocessed whole foods it's medicine. And that's what one of, you know, nutrition's the biggest pillar in in the chapter in my book that I talk about. It, nutrition is medicine, and we should utilize that a lot more. And we get very minimal training as doctors in that field. And when and when people come in, how often is it that they just say, oh, you know, you're overweight, eat less, move more. That's it. There's no more nuance to it. There's no more individualization of that care. And there's so much more. And just even me in that in the book, talking so much about for hormones, what can we do in our lifestyle and why it will help. If people understood that, they would then they would make a conscious effort to make those changes. But if people don't understand those fundamentals, they don't understand. And we were talking prior to the show, weren't we, about um, I was saying about my daughter, who's 11, who started a period. She doesn't understand why I'm saying to her exercise. You know, she just probably thinks I'm an annoying mum saying it. But if you explain that exercise releases neurotransmitters, releases hormones, including endorphins, which are natural opiates and painkillers, which will help with period pain, then then she can understand that and then start being a bit more conscious of, actually, I will walk the dog or I will do some movements. Whereas that feeling of being that ill model where we should sit on the sofa and eat ice cream, you know, that's where people <laughs> yeah. think that that will help. Um, and I think it's trying to just rebrand how we look at the way we can manage our hormones and chronic health conditions but lifestyle isn't talking talking about enough mm, very much so. and I, li I like the way you give so much um impetus if you like on that nutrition and lifestyle in the book um let's talk about i guess two categories of women right the what the the on the way in and the on the way out so we've got young girls who are coming mm -hmm. uh, and starting their periods and then we also have that disruption and, and both take a number of years right for these to, these things to happen um mm. and then obviously on the way out can be uh like a second kind of puberty effectively perimenopause yeah. where women turn around and go you know what the hell's going on everything i did before isn't working now i've got belly fat appearing i feel more anxious i can't sleep properly you know we it gets very publicized about hot flashes but actually there are so many other symptoms mm. right we less have less insulin sensitivity Let's have a look at uh, sort of perimenopausal women. Yes. First of all, what are the key things for women to nail in their sort of 40s and, and early 50s to really set themselves up? So I think I think that's an excellent question. And I've, I've been an NHS GP for 15 years. I've gone through my own hormonal journey. When I was younger, I had PCOS. I've gone through, I'm currently in the perimenopause. I've gone through the menopause for a year medically. So I'm, and I'm, you know, I'm obviously been premenstrual before period. So I've gone through all the phases so I can empathize with people who have been at different stages. And I think it's important to understand what's going on with our hormones. So quite quickly. So we have in people who have regular cycles in 28 days, you will get your estrogen levels increasing. And then in the second half of your cycle, once you've ovulated, the egg produces that progesterone and your progesterone levels increases. So I always think of the cycle as two halves, your first half and your second half. Now, in the perimenopause, you are getting, instead of nice undulating kind of waves of hormones, they go up and down quite erratically. So people find that their migraines can get worse. 
their PMS can get worse. And there's so many symptoms that can get worse. But ultimately, the the estrogen is lowering over time. And estrogen, yes, it is a hormone, but it has positive influence on the neurotransmitters in the brain. So the dopamine and the serotonin. So the common symptoms I see that people struggle with relate to what is going on in those in, in, in the hormones and neurotransmitters. So when you be, when your insulin levels are lower or lowering, we become more insulin resistant. So people find that they eat the same foods, yet they are getting this central tire and belly fat. And that is because we are less insulin sensitive. And so when we're eating, we are literally storing that as fat around the around the abdomen. And then, and so that's one of the key symptoms people find is weight gain is a problem. Brain fog is also a problem because we know that the mitochondria, which are important for energy, that that and the utilization of glucose is a hormone dependent process. So when your estrogen levels go down, you're struggling to create that energy and the mitochondria are struggling, giving you that feeling of tiredness and brain fog. And then we should probably have another chat on another podcast episode about fasting and ketosis. But that is an excellent tool to try and tap into the symptoms people can get of brain fog and tiredness and, and struggling with weight loss. So fasting and ketosis can be an excellent tool to bypass that problem with the lowering of estrogen. And then obviously we've mentioned about estrogen lowering, affecting serotonin. Serotonin is our happy hormone. So lower levels can make us feel low, lacking in motivation. And that's why so many people go to the GPs in the 40s, early 40s, with the stresses of life, busy job, and also declining hormones, which aren't talked about enough. And they can potentially be given antidepressants and they will feel some benefit, perhaps, depending on the individual, because the reason why is because the estrogen levels are declining. So there's so many symptoms. And again, a podcast for another time would be actually to talk about vaginal health and sexual health, because again, it's not talked about a lot. And I see so many women coming in with thrush, urine infections, dry vagina, painful sex in the 40s. And it's all because of the declining estrogen in the perimenopause. I mean, there's hundreds of symptoms people can experience. But I think another thing to mention, because menopause, especially with the Davina effect, it's talked about so much, but we can't always put the hormones. We wouldn't be here without hormones. A lot of hormones account for many things, but we always need to be looking for other causes as well. So that couldn't, shouldn't be missed. You know, if there's people are getting symptoms, we shouldn't just say, oh, it's perimenopause. We need to be looking if there's something else. And if it, and you know, once we rule those out, then we can say it potentially is the perimenopause. Um, Yes. So in a nutshell there, perimenopause, the fluctuation and decline in estrogen can impact brain health, muscle health, bone health, joint health. And so how we eat and exercise and how we live our lifestyle therefore needs to be adapted to take into account those factors. So let's say if we look at nutrition, for example, so I've already mentioned we're becoming more insulin resistant. So eating foods that are naturally lower in carbohydrates. Now this a lot of people say, oh, you know, especially people who train quite a lot, they might say, well, that's, we, we need carbohydrates. I'm not villainizing carbohydrates at all. We need it. We need it for gut health. However, it's eating unprocessed natural carbohydrates, fruits and vegetables, and everything in moderation is so important. But it's knowing that potentially that pizza, people, that processed food with the fat and the carbohydrates together is going to have more of a negative effect on them now rather than previously. So eating more unprocessed whole foods is very important and eating foods that have got pre and probiotics in, which is important for gut health to help with the estrogen detox, hormone detoxification. And we also know that the gut's very important for production of serotonin and dopamine. So we need to look at gut health as well. So the importance of nutrition for so many reasons is, is crucial. And again, like I said, the, 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 a big chapter in the book is focused on nutrition so people can understand because there's so many different ways people eat. Like I said, vegan, vegetarian, paleo, keto, and all of these diets are talked about, Mediterranean, which is best. And I kind of talk about that in the book. And then if we move on to exercise, again, I think it's looking at 
when we know that in our 30s, um, muscle and bone health decline with age, you know, you get sarcopenia, you get loss of bone density. And so it's really important that we do tailor our exercise for men maintenance of muscle. Um, and Dr. Leon's book, you know, talks about the importance of muscle as an organ of longevity. We know the importance. And you touched on it before, Angela, talking about how when um, in, in the clinic, when we were talking about Alzheimer's, talking about exercise and how that's really important for brain health, because we know exercising releases myokines, which is so important for brain health. So the key thing for me is, and I talk about this a lot, is looking at polarized training for women in the perimenopause and actually being aware of the heart rate zones and understanding how we utilize energy. So basically, it's looking at different types of exercise and what women should do more of. And women should do more of strength training because we need to be building up and maintaining that muscle mass. But it's also not doing too much high intensity, stressful activity because that will the autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic activity will be increased. Cortisol will be increased. We know cortisol can increase fat deposition. So it's looking at that individual at that point, what their goals are, how we can achieve it, and looking at how we should tailor their exercise. But doing a lot more exercise where your fat burning in zone two, for example, can be beneficial. And then look if, in women who are in the luteal phase in the perimenopause, they need to kind of be activating the parasympathetic nervous system a bit, a bit more and looking at ways that they can calm that down, which will help with GABA, which will help with sleep. So it's, it, I'm probably complicating the situation, but it, it, is, it is a lot easier when you're seeing people one-to-one -to, -one to look at them, take a history and kind of come up with a personalised lifestyle plan. And that's what I'm about and that's what I do. Um, and that's what I mm. really love doing because I've had a lot of hormonal problems that I have managed through lifestyle you know, I was um, I had a problem with um, chronic pain and the, the consultant offered me some morphine. And I just thought, you're putting the plaster on the issue here. I really do want to know what's causing the problem. What is the root cause? Um, and I've gone away. I've had a look at it myself, investigated it. And through lifestyle, I've completely managed my sy symptoms. I'm not on any analgesia, no painkillers whatsoever. And I know my body intuitively and what I need to do to help. And I think mm. people should have that power and knowledge to do that. And that's exactly why I wrote the book, because people don't have that foundational knowledge. You know, I've read many health books, some of them, even as a doctor, it goes over my head. And I, I, I didn't want to dumb the book down, but I think I've tried to explain things in very easy terms so people can understand the basics and science that goes on in nutrition, exercise, heart rate zones, sleep, the stages of sleep, you know, um, toxic substances, mental health what all of that does to our hormones in easy language so it can be understood. Yeah, you have. You've absolutely broken it down really, um, really very simply for people. And I think it's so important. I think a misconception or something that gets banded around that I hear uh, sort of said quite a bit in, in the in the sort of NHS is, well, you know what, if we gave patients this advice, they wouldn't take it anyway. And I don't think that's true. And I don't think that's fair. Most people want to be healthy mm -hmm. and most people will take action if they understand it. And your book very much empowers them. I think it's really interesting because um, when we look at high intensity training, certainly what I've seen and I work a lot with heart rate variability and biofeedback yeah. is people think, oh, I mustn't, I mustn't do too much high intensity exercise. Um, but you made a very good point there around polarizing that training because a mm. lot of people are not working in zone two and zone five. They're doing a lot in the very upper end of zone three and zone four, which for, for those of you listening that maybe haven't figured out your zones, this is where you're working pretty intensively and you're getting that amazing rush of endorphins after it. It feels really good. You've got a sweat on, your heart rate's up. But if you're doing that for an hour, you're actually causing a lot of inflammation and stress mm. to the body, but you're not necessarily getting the adaptations. And it's interesting because when you look at zone five and you're at that kind of 95 to sort of even 103, right? You go above your maximum heart rate, 103% or so. Um, and you track it. I've tracked it myself with uh, a whoop strap and then I've compared it with their algorithm, which they've got the only one to kind of do a strength training. And what's really interesting is the strain score for doing that type of exercise where you're only really going very intense for 20 or 30 seconds and you're coupling that with mm. a recovery of somewhere between four and eight times and then you're going again, the strain is actually very low. It's less often yes. uh, than resistance training, mm. but you're getting those adaptations mm. and it's helping with mitochondrial health. It is. And it's just, it's a pretty amazing, 
amazing form of exercise, I think, that also helps with insulin sensitivity and things like that. Oh, 100%. And I think we don't talk about that enough. I mean, I try. So in my luteal phase, I have started doing a lot more. Um, I will make sure my recovery is there, you know, make sure there's good three to four minutes even potentially between those high bursts of sprints that I do to make sure that I'm getting the benefits to my mitochondrial health. And like you said, you can still get that adaptation, but those adaptations happen not when we're there, when we're sleeping. So the other pillar of lifestyle we talk about a lot is sleep. And obviously the whoop strap will have a look at how, you know, your sleep quality and the architecture of your sleep. And it's very important that we know that people say, oh, you know, you need to make sure you sleep. That is when those adaptations in the gym are going to occur. And that's when that recovery is very important as well. And so I'm, I train a lot. I've started understanding and listening to my body more and recovering a lot more. You know, I'm, I'm getting married in a, in a week and a half. I'm not where I want to be, but I've done it in a very healthy way. And I'm much more fitter than I ever used to be. And interestingly, digressing here, but the number of people that said to me, oh, you should go on the skinny jab. You should use utilize this. But, but you, you hit the nail on the head before about how behavior change in these pillars of lifestyle, nutrition, exercise, sleep, avoiding toxic substances, improving your mental health, positive psychology. You might know what those things are, but actually making those changes, how do we do it? And people will, if they want to do it enough, if they're on that stage of change and in that cycle, they will make that change. But it's it's understanding where they are in that cycle and understanding how they can make that change. But I think some people do want a plaster to be put on it. And in 10 minutes, it's very difficult for a GP to go into that root cause and give them a personalized management plan in 10 minutes. <laughs> so mm. it, I think that's the difficulty we're finding is that, yes, it is great for people who have got an established chronic condition. However, I still believe a lot of these established chronic conditions are reversible because a lot of them are caused by lifestyle. So we should try and reverse it through lifestyle. But there's on so many medications, so many blood pressure medications, so many you know, people with type 2 diabetes, so many type 2 diabetic medications. And you just think this has been driven by your poor nutrition, the lack of exercise over the years. The, you know, it's a cumulative, cumulative effect of all of those pillars of poor lifestyle living in those areas over the years has caused this. And so it's going to take, yes, it can take not just a week to get better. It can take months slash years to get better but it, it is totally reversible. If it's caused by lifestyle, we can replace it. We can reverse it through lifestyle. And I think if people really knew that, then there's so much we can do. I mean, thyroid health, again, is another topic, but autoimmune thyroid conditions, autoimmunity, again, a lot more evidence is coming out about how lifestyle can be implicated in this auto, you know, leaky gut, for example, and the correlation between that and autoimmunity. So why aren't we addressing that? Why aren't we addressing the nutrition and their gut health? Why are we just giving them tablet after tablet? It's um, it 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 mind baffles me, really does. Yeah, I mean, no, I agree. I agree totally. And what about as people um are going through like perimenopause? You're mentioning like we can start to experience these symptoms in our early forties. Um, at what point can someone know that this is the time I need to be thinking about? Uh, maybe speaking to my doctor about getting some exogenous hormones because mm -hmm. you know it's not it's I don't think it's widely used in the UK that you can go and get progesterone support on its own for example no. because progesterone is kind of mm -hmm. sneaking out the back door quite early um, can you explain for people how that process works and when they would know it's the right time because I think often they feel a bit pushed back as well unfortunately by their GPs of like as you say they might be given antidepressants prescription or they might be told well no you've got a regular cycle so it's not relevant how can they know and sort of navigate this minefield it can be very difficult i mean so you know anyone less than 40 if if let's say they're having symptoms or if there are any problems with the periods it it, it could be a premature ovarian insufficiency picture and then blood tests can be done for people in that stage between 40 and 45 you know it could be an early menopause picture so if you're developing symptoms like i've mentioned that would tell you that there's some imbalance in your hormones and that it needs to be looked at. But from the age of 45 onwards, any kind of vasomotor symptoms, so hot flushes, um, it can be urogynecological symptoms, so recurrent UTIs, thrush, 
painful sex, any problems down in, in, in the vagina area, that can be how people can present with. That might be what they present with first. And we do see so many women at that phase and we never really think, oh, could this be the perimenopause? Could they benefit from vaginal estrogen? Um, and there are, like I've mentioned, brain health issues, so low mood, low motivation, um, depression-type symptoms, which could be due to that estrogen deficiency. So it, we need to take a full history. And 95% of the diagnosis in GP is based on a history. If you take a good enough history and understand that person in front of you, you can get a lot from taking a history. Blood tests aren't always necessary. It depends on the age of the patient and whether there are any red flag symptoms. So if we're worried about anything else, um, but I think we should be having that conversation really um, early on. You know, I had problems with recurrent UTIs and it, I don't think any GP even mentioned, extra, you know, um, vaginal estrogen at all because they just presumed or have that assumption that I was too young. But if you remember me saying I have gone through the medical menopause for it was about 18 months. So that in itself would cause my levels to reduce. And so even when I came off my GNRH analog injections coming out of it and having my cycles again there was probably still some form of estrogen depletion and that was never addressed it was just antibiotic after antibiotic after antibiotic followed by thrush followed by the problems that occurred afterwards just polypharmacy after polypharmacy with not looking at hormones it's a it's a basic concept um so i encourage people to speak to the gp a lot of gps you know i've mentioned perhaps may look at giving antidepressants, but maybe if people are getting worsening migraines and people are getting worsening symptoms, a trial of HRT, if that's what the patient wants and there's no contraindications, is something that could be done. And I think, you know, a lot of people are talking more about HRT being given. There's so many different formulations, there's so many different things to think of, but there are options there for people. And some people choose not to take any, and that's absolutely, you know, but we do know there's a lot of emerging evidence, the benefits for brain health, like Dr. Moscani looks at all, there's been so many research papers coming out about this. We know it's good for brain health and cardiovascular health. Um, but you mentioned, which was really interesting about progesterone therapy on its own. Now, I remember going to a conference recently and um, there was a woman who was saying how she had a hysterectomy and her ovaries um, were kept in situ and she was given, oh, sorry, no, she was given, no, no, she had a, she had a total abdominal hysterectomy and she had her ovaries removed at the same time. And so she, because she didn't have a womb anymore, she was given estrogen only HRT. And she was saying how she was struggling with anxiety and struggling with insomnia. And I just thought to myself, what does progesterone do? It's our natural antidepressant, anti-anxiety medication. Naturally, we produce that. It helps with potentiating GABA, helping with our sleep. And this woman who's had her ovaries removed and her, you know, a large proportion of her progesterone supply removed and just given estrogen only HRT, because that's what the indication and the license is in the UK to give. But I think it's going to be, I know that um, Professor Jack, um, um, Professor yeah, she's doing a lot yeah. of work on mm. progesterone therapy and you know, it's the same as testosterone. You know, if there's people who are who have not got their ovaries, then, you know, we need to really be thinking holistically of could they benefit from some progesterone, but it would be used off label or off license. And this is the problem. But it's very interesting how many people can think about increasing doses higher and higher for estrogen. But what about progesterone? What about testosterone? And I think we really need to start thinking big picture here and actually looking at that person what are those symptoms? She's got anxiety and insomnia. That screams lack of progesterone to me. Yet all we were doing were increasing her estrogen and then putting her on anti-anxiety and antidepressant medications. And I'm just like, well, mm. what, what, you know, would a trial of eutrogestone be so bad? You know, as long as you're getting shared care and you're getting individualizing the care for that patient, it is off license, it is off label. But we do that so many times already for people with, with pain, we give off, you know, we children, for example, you know, the paracetamol is off, off license because the clinical studies haven't been there. So we need to start thinking about that patient in front of us and what is appropriate for them. Um, because there's a lot of people who are doing that and thinking about the patient, but it's also, you know, practicing within the scope of your practice as well. And if it's not something you feel comfortable in, you know, there are 
GPs that have got specialist menopause training that you can refer to. And there are other healthcare professionals, whether that's holistic ones, nutritional therapists, um, you know, integrative and functional medics. So many people that that people can see, but obviously some of those are private as well. And I, do, I believe truly that people should be able to access this all on the NHS. I agree. I mean, for women who uh, maybe are thinking, like, I'll go privately um, until this is available, I will. Um, what are your thoughts around if if the if budget is no um, obstacle around the fact that you know a private doctor will test yours they'll use a compounding pharmacy they will adjust the levels on you we're told within the nhs that's not necessary here in england mm. um what are your thoughts um on that and whether actually no we should be really personalizing the dosages so a lot of um, so I, it took me a while to get my head around this so we've got body identical hrt and we've got bioidentical HRT. Now, body identical HRT is your, um, so in the olden Regulated. days, we, yeah, and in the olden days, we used to have, um, we used to use the urine from pregnant horses, um, which was conjugated estrogens, um, like Premarin, and, and that's where that name came from. And again, like it was conjugated, it had already gone through the liver and gone through the gut, and, and, and that's what we were utilising. And the newer body identical HRT therapies they are excellent because they are body identical. They come from yams. So we have our, you know, your transdermal estrogens, but then also Uchigestan is body identical progesterone. Now, a lot of studies like the WHI were done on progestins. And so this is where a lot of the controversy between medications arise. But there's quite a lot of good data to suggest that body identical HRT is adequate and bioidentical compounded ones with limited research is needed so i you know the the bms and the british menopause society in this country talk very much about um, body identical and i think we're moving moving towards that now people should be offered body identical estrogen and progesterone and if people are progesterone intolerant which is a problem especially in people susceptible to postnatal depression pms and pmdd taking that progesterone in a different format whether rectal or vaginal is op is an option as well because everyone's different in how they respond um, and i think it's very much a trial and error it, but but there's so much that we can do with regards to hrt and since i qualified up until now there's been so much more that's been done because in the olden, you know, after the WHI trial, everyone, you know, we we just didn't prescribe it very much at all. You know, the rates completely went down. But we, we, there's so much about that trial that was misleading. And we know, and like I've said, a lot of, you know, Uchigestan is body identical progesterone, whereas the WHI trial looked at a different population group of an older age and it was synthetic progestins again. Mm. And, and, and it's the, the, the risk associated with utilising that. But, you know, I mean, we look at the contraceptive pill, that is a synthetic progestin, isn't it? So Yeah, that you know. is. But is what you're saying there, just to clarify then for listeners, is that when we're looking at menopause hormone therapy, mm -hmm. um, away from birth control, um, that the body, so the body identical ones are the same as the bioidentical ones, but they're in regulated dosages. Mm -hmm. So they're standard dosages that your doctor will kind of work with you. The difference with a bioidentical hormone therapy is that now you're seeing someone privately who's um, using a compounding pharmacy to get the dose specifically right to you based on blood testing that would be the distinction between the two i think so i've not i've not got much experience with bioidentical so i don't actually know if blood tests are done and how the dosing is um is is done but like you said it's unregulated and the it's very much based on um doses and formulations that haven't been had robust clinical trials on whereas the body identical ones have and are you know regulated by the mhra so they're they're ones that we tend to use. And I genuinely believe that women can find symptom control on body identical HRT if the right formulation and the right dose is used in conjunction with HR, with, with the lifestyle medicine. Lifestyle, yeah. Because, this I mean, is crucial. It is, I mean, it is. I mean, a lot of people start saying how, you know, there's a lot of private clinics that you can go to and get body identical HRT that a lot of, do and testosterone prescribed, whereas a lot of primary care GPs feel that, that they're not qualified enough because it's you know it's it is unlicensed and it is off label but and a lot of people feel giving that replacement of hormones is important for them to enable them to do lifestyle changes i.e to eat better to move more 
however i've got at the moment yes i'm perimenopausal but you know my estrogen levels and progesterones are within normal range they might be fluctuating but if i don't want to go to the gym i won't it's you know it's mind over it's very much a behavioral thing so even if you replace someone's hormones yes it might give them a bit more energy to do it but again it's 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 not going they need to make those lifestyle changes and behavioral mm. changes in conjunction with it because yeah. if they're going to be drinking alcohol excessively not looking after the gut health they can be taking the hormone but actually not detoxing it properly not actually excreting it properly and it and the the, the, the side effects perhaps may be worsened and i don't think we talk about that enough people just mm. presume that we can give it they'll feel better but if they're if they're going to be eating pizzas and drinking alcohol regularly um to an excess dose with no pre or probiotics, um, lacking in sleep with a high cortisol, there's going to be interactions there between the other hormones. So there's, it's, it's not conducive to the health. And that's where people think, you know, HRT is the panacea for everything and it isn't. No, it isn't. And I don't think it specifically, I think it helps with bone density, doesn't it? And cognition and things, but not necessarily with, I mean, I think it's, my understanding from the research is that it's helpful when you do that, if you're doing the things like the resistance training, but um, it's, and and maybe you've got a slight edge on someone who isn't taking hormones, um, but you still have to be doing the resistance training. You're not going to get stronger if you're not doing it. Do you see what I mean? I want to pick up on something there that you said about progesterone, because I thought it was quite important. You were saying that some people, some women will not tolerate progesterone Mm -hmm. that well, I think, because, and that was women who had a history of, depression or things like PCOS were you saying can you just clarify yeah, that I think yeah, that's interesting so, so yeah so there's people who and um, so I, I have been progesterone intolerant um, in my time I've had to have um, when when I was conceiving I had to have vaginal progesterone um, and progestins in the contraceptive pill I very much was intolerant to the utrogestan that we tend to use now or the progesterone because I know there's a there's a new um, trade um, there's a new trade traded um, medication for that at the minute they are body identical so women can find they're like oh I don't want to take progesterone because when I went on the pill I felt very moody very sensitive I was crying it might suit them because this one is body identical it's the same progesterone that your body produces however even even then people can still be very sensitive so they can utilize progesterone in other ways so they can have um, vaginal progesterone and rectal progesterone as well um, if if they are very sensitive to it, just for that uterine protection, if they're having combined HRT, if they're going to go on HRT, and there's so what about many progesterone creams, are they? It's difficult it is... to dose, right? But um, so as far as I know, that you've got your progesterone tablets, um, which progesterone can be given either as utrogestan or another trade name, and then you've got your um, pessaries. Now, sometimes the pessary, uh, tablets can be given off label vaginally but also you've got uh, vaginal um, progesterone pessaries as well um i've never used the creams before um so i, I can't Dr. really Michael comment Platt, actually who's been i did an episode with him he produces mm-hmm. a progesterone cream which okay. i know actually i heard back from listeners after using it i think they they actually liked it. it's quite interesting he's written a lot about progesterone therapy um yeah yeah I find okay. it interesting with progesterone because I feel like it's, you know, we talk, there's a lot more talk going on about um, testosterone and, and the fact women need that. But then, so there's women on estrogen and once they're fully estrogenized, i.e. they're on an optimal dose at that point, then testosterone can be given. And many people find lots of benefits with motivation, not just libido, but motivation, memory, you know um, brain health and there's a lot more evidence coming out around about that but we I, don't, I think progesterone is sometimes a bit lost and I think I think just because someone doesn't have their womb does not necessarily mean they don't need progesterone but it's not routinely given in the UK mm-hmm. and like I said a, a Jacqueline Pryor has done a lot of work around giving progesterone therapy um, as a form of HRT in people who are even perimenopausal you know do they need like when we talked about estrogen dominance, is it that they just need a bit more progesterone in those perimenopausal years? You know, these are things and questions that we need to be asking and do pe- could people actually benefit from? Um, and then also if they're having problems with anxiety, insomnia, we know that that progesterone helps potentiate GABA and help with those symptoms. So why aren't we using it? And it's because the evidence isn't there. So it's not something that we can recommend. But then, you know, there are private clinics that do give things off label and off license if the patient's willing to try it. And with everything, you trial it, you follow up and you see. 
Um, mm. But the problem is, is because we haven't got that data there for the long term health outcomes, it's a very sticky situation to know, you know, for as a prescriber to do these things because it's not routinely done. But for me, I think a lot of hormonal imbalances, um, especially PCOS, um, endometriosis to some extent, if we've got nutrigenomic testing, PMDD as well, PMS, PMDD, I think a huge amount of the management can be done looking at lifestyle alone. Um, and interestingly, I've looked at the guidelines, but there's such weak evidence. We know exercise is beneficial as a modality in its on its own. And so, yes, guidelines may introduce that and say, yes, there's weak evidence to suggest we can utilize it for mild cases of PMS, PMDD, PCOS. But actually, for me, I think there should be more emphasis on that tailored to an individual. Mm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, I think my, you know, lifestyle and nutrition has definitely helped my PCOS and endometriosis and resolved pretty mm. much, much all of that. You know, I still obviously PCOS is a metabolic um, disorder. I think like having more muscle and things really helps. And I think I do have to work at controlling my blood glucose, but I'm mm -hmm. pretty, really lean. And, you know, I think lifestyle definitely. Um, Professor Geraldine Pryor, interestingly, um, for people listening has a paper that you can actually take I think yes. that she you could to your GP and say here's the evidence for progesterone yeah. only therapy for anyone listening to that um, we've run out of time thank you so much Dr Millie it's been amazing I feel like we've really only scratched the surface um, your book Happy Hormones Happy You uh, is uh, it does what it says on the title I think <laughs> it's a really good kind of journey for people chapter by chapter how to optimize all of these things please share where can people connect with you I know you're very active I think on Instagram doing lots of lives and things on there but please share where can listeners come and find you and your work yes um so on instagram so it's at d-r-m-i-double-l-i um and then obviously my book happy hormones happy you is on um available to buy on amazon and then in 2024 i will be doing a lot more retreats on fasting hormonal health and um doing a lot more educational events so um, my website is just drmilli.co.uk and there's a newsletter people can subscribe to and my YouTube channel as well with some educational videos for people to watch on hormones and how we can make them happy. Amazing. Thank you so much. We will link to all of that in the show notes. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I hope today's episode inspired you on your journey to vibrant health and high performance. Make sure you check out the show notes for a summary of all the important links to everything we talked about. And if you enjoyed this episode, hit the follow button and share it with a friend on social media or leave a review over on Apple Podcasts. Remember, achieving high performance health is about getting 1% better each day. So think about one thing you learned from today's episode and start implementing it today. Share with me what you've learned on social media over at Angela S. Foster. I love hearing from you and connecting with you. Have a beautiful day and always remember you are worthy of your dreams. Mm -hmm.